ministry leaders here, or as uh, Jacob would uniquely describe me, a large man in the back of the room. So. Today's scripture reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, who was nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the, side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to shore, for they were only about 100 yards from the shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net had not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked them, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let them know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. We are in the fifth and final week of looking at these closing chapters in the Gospel of John. So we spent a, a week looking at chapter 18, the arrest. We spent two weeks in chapter 19 looking at the, the crucifixion and the burial. And then last week we looked at John chapter 20, the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And today we've got 21, chapter John chapter 21, uh, which I subjected you to having the entire chapter read 
um, partly because it's it's one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, so it's my prerogative as the pastor. I get to make you listen to a three-minute reading. Uh, but also because the whole thing's pretty crucial. To, it it kind of hangs together. It can't really be divided up into into parts. And, and for that reason, the message isn't going to really be able to be divided up into parts either. We're just going to kind of walk through the passage, try to decode it. It's a little bit strange and esoteric at points um, and see see if we can develop this this one thesis, which is, I'll give it to you up front and then we'll kind of unpack it as we go. The thesis, the, the sermon is sentence, the, the big lesson we learn from the passage is that Jesus shows us who we really are to prepare us for who we can become. He shows us who we really are to prepare us for who we can become. And that's what he does with Peter. Peter's the center of the action this week. Last week it was Mary and Thomas. This week it's Peter. It's all Peter from start to finish. Jesus shows Peter who he really is to prepare him for what he can become. And he can he can do the same thing for us. So it's going to be somewhat uh, slow building. Um, you know, you're going to wonder at first, you know, is, is this really going anywhere? Because I really want to take the time to, to go through each verse of the, of the passage I'm not saying it's going to be long, it's going to be normal length, but it's going to be slow building. Um, and hopefully by the end, we'll, we'll have kind of gotten to the to the main point and the, the thesis will have been developed. So well, we can start by uh, observing that it's an epilogue. Um, the, the book ended last week with Thomas and Jesus, Thomas saying, my Lord, my God. And then John says, that's a wrap, cut, essentially. He says, you know, th- this is the end of the book. And then we get this this next scene, which is, you know, kind of strange at first until you realize, oh, it's just an, an, an epilogue, a, a normal literary device. And like an epilogue often does, it, it takes us back to the very beginning. So if you were watching the, the Gospel of John as a movie, you would probably think that this scene was a flashback at first because it's a scene you've seen exactly already, and it was the first scene of the movie. It was the first first time we met the disciples was this exact setting on a boat fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Same boat, same lake. More importantly, it's the, the first time Jesus met them too, which we'll, we'll see why that's important in a second. Uh, but first, just kind of notice the, the strangeness of the setting, the appropriateness of the setting, but the strangeness of the setting. This is their home. This is where they came from. This is their profession. They are fishermen. Um, and this is where we first met them. But a lot's happened since we first met them. They've been in the, the center of the national conversation, the news. The, uh, the, everything has been focused on them for the past several months and especially the past week, you know, Jesus has been the big thing that's been going on. He's crucified. Um, there's reports that he's been raised, but you know, nobody nobody knows for sure um, except them and the other people that he's appeared to. Um, so it's basically over. You know, it's it, everything had been focused on Jesus and them, and then it's just over now. And so it's kind of like, well, what do we do now? Let's go back home. Let's go back to the lake. Let's go back to the boat. It's it's like if. Um, this is strange to imagine, but if a, a team of uh, commercial deep-sea fishermen were hired collectively to run a U.S. presidential campaign, and they do their thing for a couple of years, and their guy loses, and you know they're on TV every day, they're in the news every day, they're constantly doing interviews, their guy loses, and then one of them's like, well, what do we do now? And the next day, you see him back on the boat in the middle of the ocean, no cell phone coverage, like like nothing ever happened. It's just it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre, and into this bizarre scene comes Jesus, and he decides to kind of play up the bizarreness factor by um, 
reenacting the first time they, they met. He almost, he almost comes across as nostalgic here. You don't really think of Jesus as nostalgic usually, but he almost seems that way here because he sees them on this setting where they first met, and he decides, well, let's, let's reenact that. Like those um, long, drawn-out proposals, you know, where you, marriage proposals, where you go back to all the places that um, you, you first met and do all the things you first did together, that, that kind of thing. I, I didn't do that. I'm not romantic like that. Um, but I've heard of nice men doing that kind of thing. Um, so it's like that. You know, he's, he feels nostalgic about the time they first met. And he's like, let's reenact it. So the, how did they first meet? Um, they're on the same boat in this uh, same lake. They had fished all night. They come in. They hadn't caught anything. You fish at night there. And uh, they're, they're washing up their nets, getting ready to go, go home and go to bed. And Jesus comes, and there's a, a crowd of people trailing behind him. And he says, hey, can I use your boat for a second? And they're like, uh, okay. And so he takes the boat, and he paddles out a few um, feet into the water and uses the boat as his stage to, to give like an hour-long sermon you know, to the crowds who are, are on the shore. And they're just waiting for this guy to finish up his sermon so they can go home. And the crowds disperse, he finishes up, and then he goes to, to Peter, who's the guy who owns the boat. He says, okay, now let's go fishing. I want to go fishing. Now, Peter's a professional fisherman. <laughs> Jesus is not. Peter has not slept all night. He's fished all night, not caught anything. Um, he's waiting for this guy to finish his sermon using his boat as a stage. This is the last thing he wants to do is, is take the, the pastor on a little fishing field trip. And he says, well, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. I fished all night already. There's no fish out there. But Jesus twists his arm, takes him out. They go fishing. He says, let down your net here. Let's down that. They try to pull the net up, and it's you know, full of more fish than anybody's ever seen in their life. They can't get it up. It breaks halfway up. They finally do get some of the fish into the boat. There's so many fish, the boat starts to sink, and all the guys are just like staring at Jesus wide-eyed, and he's just sitting there smiling. And that's how they met. That's how it started. That's how it all began. That's the day that he said for the first time, follow me. Leave your nets and follow me. That's where Jesus and these guys got their start. So it's same boat, same lake, and Jesus yells out from the shore, sees them out there, and he says, hey, have you got anything? And they say no. You know, they think he you know, wants to buy some fish maybe or is just kind of making conversation. And he says, well, let down your net on the other side, which wasn't a totally crazy thing for somebody to say. Sometimes the, you know, the water's clear, so somebody standing on the shore could sometimes see a, a shoal of fish that they, the people in the boat couldn't see. So they throw their net on the other side, they, they haul it up, and uh, you know, there's more fish than anybody's ever seen, except for one other time they had seen this many fish, and so they, they figure it out. And Peter puts on his robe to jump in the water, uh, and they, they fished you know, with just a, a loincloth, and so he, he puts on his robe, because to greet somebody is this act of respect, especially if it's Jesus. So he puts on his robe to jump in the water, to swim fully clothed back to, to shore to be the first one to greet Jesus. He gets there, Jesus already has a fire going, already has fish, didn't need their fish, um, has some bread too, he's cooking breakfast, the other guys get there a couple minutes later, and they sit down and they, they eat breakfast together on the shore, around the fire. And it's, it's this just achingly beautiful, tender, heartwarming scene of all these guys back together again. And you can just imagine how, how grateful they all are grateful to be together, grateful to be alive, grateful that Jesus is alive, 
grateful for all the memories, not, not just the memory of you know, when he had first called them, they're all thinking about that, but there's other memories that are recalled here with this passage. Jesus jump, uh, Peter jumping into the water to go to Jesus recalls when, when Peter stepped out of the boat to go to Jesus on the water. Um, Jesus passing out the fish and the bread to the disciples recalls when Jesus passed out the fish and the bread at the feeding of the 5,000 to them, and he kept passing it out, and they kept distributing it. They're just, it's like this big, happy family reunion where they're just you know, watching the, the slideshow, essentially. And, and all these had been, for a few days, the most painful memories of all. They had, been, they had been incredibly painful memories while Jesus was in the grave. These memories of kind of unfulfilled promises, essentially. Now that he's back, they get these memories back again. They get the joy back again. Really beautiful scene. And after breakfast, there's this, this stark change in tone. Because the, the other disciples get up, uh, maybe to you know, take care of the fish or the nets or whatever, um, Peter stays around the fire because um, he's sopping wet and cold and trying to dry out. And Jesus stays at the fire with him. And Jesus, when they're alone, asks him one of those que- one of those awful, awful questions you just can barely even listen to. It makes you cringe so much. Just completely, ru- they've this beautiful thing going on, and he completely ruins it. It's like when you've got this great family reunion. And then somebody says the one thing that nobody's supposed to say, that nobody's supposed to talk about. Uh, And that's what Jesus does here. He says, Peter, there's one thing that I want to ask you. Do you love me more than these other guys do? do? Do you love me the most? Do you love me more than these other guys do? And it's nowhere, there's nowhere where Jesus looks this cruel. Because he's bringing up the one thing the one thing that Peter has been trying to forget goes back to the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, and he had been telling the disciples, look, they're going to come for me, and you are all going to scatter. You're all going to run, essentially kind of saying, it's okay. Don't, don't you know, beat yourself up about it. I understand. And Peter says, Jesus, even if everybody else runs, I will, I will never desert you. Which is essentially what he's saying is, I, I see what you're saying about the other guys. You know, I've, I've been hanging out with them, and it's true. They don't love you like I do. They don't love you as much as I do. I love you the most. I love you more than these. Even if everybody else deserts you, I won't desert you. And, you know, the other guys did desert. And so they're not, I mean, they're not these spiritual giants. They're not these, these hot shots. But at the same time, to their credit and to, to Peter's discredit, not one of the other guys was as stupid as to say something like that. You know, not one of the other guys was as out of touch with reality and with themselves to, to stand up and say something like that. So Jesus doesn't usually knock people down just for the, the fun of it, but if they stand up, if they puff themselves up, then, then he knocks them down and he says, Well, Peter, I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say anything about this, but now that you mention it, the truth is, not only are you not going to stand by me, but you're going to lie to save your own skin. Not only are you not going, not only are you going to not desert me, you're going to deny that you even know me. You're going to do it three times, to be exact, before the morning comes. And Peter looks at him, he says, 
never. I will never do that. I will never do what you said. You don't know me. I will be true to you. Even if I have to go to jail with you, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Jesus says, okay. So, you know, you all know how, how the rest of the story plays out. It's, Peter does actually go further than the, uh, the other disciples do. He follows Jesus to the trial. He can't get into the courthouse, so he's standing, uh, standing around, sitting around outside in the courtyard, outside the courthouse, uh, with other you know, servants and soldiers and, and the like. And he's unconsciously, without even thinking about it, kind of playing it like he's just this disinterested party, you know, just kind of there. And so finally one of the servant girls is like, well, well wait a minute, you're, you're with him, right? I mean, you're, you're one of his, his followers, and he's, and he's kind of caught off guard. No, me? No, no. That's one. And so she says, well, that's funny because I'm, I'm almost sure I've actually seen you with him before. He says, no, uh, no, I, I don't know him personally. Um, I mean, I know who he is, of course, but no, I, I did that. It wasn't me. I don't know him personally. That's two. And, and Scripture says the third time he denies with cursing. So, you know, then the, the, the others around there kind of join the conversation they've been hearing and, and they say, look, man, I mean, you've got the same accent that he does. Uh, there's not a lot of people from your part of the country around here. We, we all know that you're with him. And he says, look, I don't effing know the guy, okay? So just leave me alone. And they say, okay. And right then is when he looks up at the horizon and sees that the sun's coming up. And right then is when he hears a rooster crow. Right then when they open the door and... The guards lead Jesus out into the courtyard. Luke's gospel says that Jesus locks eyes with him just for a second as he's walking by and that Peter runs out and, in the words of Scripture, weeps bitterly. Weeps bitterly. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus is bringing up. And it's like he, he waits until, everybody, until Peter's got his guard down, essentially, and then sticks the knife in. You know, I mean, this is... Tender, loving scene, and then he goes for the jugular. He, he slices him. He slices him. He cuts really, really deep. The question is why? Is he trying to, trying to get back at him? Is he, you know, just, is he trying to rub it in that he was right and Peter was wrong? Why does he, he cut him like this? And the answer is he, he doesn't cut him to get back at him. He doesn't cut him um, to be mean. He doesn't cut him to hurt him. He cuts him to heal him. It's the, the slice of a surgeon cutting to heal, trying to get to the, the root issue of what was, what was going on, the root of the problem. Because it has to be addressed. It, you know, the, the denial has to be addressed. It's the elephant in the room. Somebody has to say something. And if Jesus is going to address it, he's, he's going to go all the way to the bottom. He's going to go to the, the source of the problem. Not like us. Not like we do. Because you know, what he, he, he could have done is just, you know, quote, unquote, address the issue by saying, now, now Peter, you, you denied me, didn't you? You know, that was, that was very bad. You shouldn't have done that. He said, I know, Lord, I, I shouldn't have done that. You're not going to do it again, are you? No, no, Jesus, I'm not going to do it again. Okay, you're sorry, right? Okay. And that's what we do. That's how we talk to our kids. That's how we talk to ourselves. You know, I'm never going to do that again. And you know, it's just hacking at the, the weeds, essentially, you know, never getting to the root. And so that's why it's always, you know, we do it again. That's why it happens again, because we never get to the root of the problem. So Jesus isn't like that. If Jesus is going to address it, he's going to go all the way to the root. And that's what he's doing here when he says, Peter, let me, let me ask you something. Do you still think, 
now that all this has happened? Do you still think that you love me the most? Do you still think that you love me more than all the other guys love me? In other words, do you see yourself now for who you really are instead of for this person that you pretended to be? Do you see how full of yourself you are? Do you see how unjustifiably proud you've been? Do you see how competitive you are, how your whole life has been about winning and being the best and being on top and being better than everybody else? Do you, see, do you finally see how that unwavering sense of faith in yourself, that outrageous self-esteem led you to the test, the moment, the crisis, the chance you had to prove yourself, and you colossally blew it. You, you failed. You failed worse than anybody could have possibly failed. You failed. You think you're the guy that always comes through in the clutch, and it came, and it happened, and you failed. You crumbled. A, a servant girl asked you, and you crumbled. Do you see that now? Or do you still think that you love me the most? You still think that you love me more than all the other guys? And Jesus, you know, Peter just looks down and mumbles, you know that I love you, which is essentially the answer that, that Jesus was looking for. You know, he's not, he's not going to lie again. He's not going to say I love you more than the other guys. You know that I love you. and I, I, don't, I barely know my own heart. I definitely know, don't know their heart. I love you as much as you say I love you, Jesus. You know that I love you, which is the answer that, that Jesus was looking for. He wants to see that he's, he's broken. And he's not breaking him just you know, to leave him lying there in a heap. He's, he's doing it because he wants to restore him. So that's why he asks him a couple of more times after that. You know, that at first it's, you love me more than these, you know, asking him about what he had said, that he loves him the most. And then the second time he just says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Ask him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. John doesn't want us to, to miss what's happening here, so he mentions that they're sitting around a, a charcoal fire. There's only one other place in all of Scripture that the phrase charcoal fire appears, that those words appear Two places in the whole Bible. The other place is in the Gospel of John, same author, uh, chapter 18, where it says that when, when Peter was standing around with the servants and the soldiers outside the courthouse, the courtyard there, they were standing around a, a charcoal fire. So two charcoal fires, one in which he denies Jesus three times behind his back, the other in which he confesses his love for Christ three times to his face. And the, the point is, John's trying to tell us, the point is that Jesus is covering this over. Jesus is undoing the denial. He's giving him three chances to profess his love. He's saying, this, this doesn't come between us. This doesn't change anything between us. It's over. It happened. It's over. But at the same time, he's doing surgery on Peter's heart and saying, that doesn't change that you're still this guy. And I need you to know that you're this guy, that you're this self-righteous, arrogant son of a gun who thinks that he loves me so much more than he really does, who thinks that he's capable of so much more than he really is. I need you to see that that's who you really are. And Peter, in, in the way he answers, essentially says, yes, I get it. I see it. To which Jesus says, good, because I've, I've got a job for you to do. Peter's like, huh? And he says, yeah, I want you to, to be the shepherd. I want you to be the pastor. I want you to be the leader of my movement. That's that part about where Jesus, each time when, when Peter says, 
I love you, says, you feed my sheep, take care of my flock. That, that's the verb. The word that's used there is the verb form of the, the noun, poimen, pastor, shepherd, leader. This, he says, Peter, I want you to be the guy. I want you to be the guy that's in charge. And the question is, does he want Peter to be the guy that's in charge in spite of the fact that he failed like this or because of the fact that he failed like this? And the answer clearly is because. He's choosing Peter, not in spite of his denial, not in spite of his failure, but because of his failure, because through his failure, he finally sees himself as he really is. And because of that, he can have power. Because what's the source of spiritual power? Not how much Peter loves Jesus, but how much Jesus loves Peter. But that's blocked. That's there. You can't access that. You can't channel that as long as you think you've got it in yourself. And the moment you come to the end of yourself, at the moment you realize that you really aren't capable of what you thought you were capable of, then that's when you can, you can tap into that for the first time. He's essentially saying, you know, I, I can trust you now that I asked you if you love me, and you kind of hesitated and mumbled, yeah, I think so. Because when you were sure that you loved me, when, when you were sure that you loved me the most, that's when I couldn't count on you. But now that you're not so sure, now that you, you hope you love me, now I can, I can depend on you to lead this movement. And now, now you can be that guy that you wanted to be um, on the night of the arrest. You can be the hero. You can go and die for me. You can go and kind of be this, this great heroic martyr that you thought you could be before. That's what he says when he, he's saying uh, at the end there, um, you know, you can, you're going to go and you're going to lead you where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands. He's talking about crucifixion. That's what, what John says. And the irony, of course, is that Peter wanted to do that before, and now he doesn't want to anymore. You know, he's, he says, you know, before he wants to be set apart above all the others, and now Jesus tells him, you're going to die this heroic death. And he says, uh, what about the other guys? You know, what, what, about, what about John? Um, is this just going to be me? Or, you know, why? Why me? Now he doesn't want it anymore. Which is exactly the point. Jesus says, when you wanted it, when you wanted to do it, you weren't qualified to do it. And now that you don't want to do it, now you're ready. This is, this is the way God works. This is a pattern. This is not just Peter. You see it all throughout Scripture. It's the exact same, identical with, uh, with Moses in the book of Exodus. So Moses is just like Peter when he's 40, when he's 40 years old. He's, uh, he's this hot shot, and he wants to change the world he was raised in Pharaoh's court, so raised as, as royalty, Egyptian royalty, but he's Jewish by blood. And he, he sees the injustice of the, the uh, Egyptians enslaving the Jews, and he, he says, this is my life calling. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is my destiny. I'm the guy that's going to liberate the Jews from Egyptian slavery. This is going to be great. I'm going to change the world. Except that he doesn't know himself at all. And so day one of the campaign, he gets mad and murders a guy. Um, doesn't think anybody sees, hides the body. Day two of his I'm going to liberate Israel campaign, he goes to try to mediate a dispute, and the guy says, we're supposed to listen to you, the murderer. He realizes he's in trouble. He, he flees. He goes into exile, and he spends the next 40 years of his life, mar- marries this pagan woman, has kids, lives in this you know far-flung town off the grid as a shepherd. Basically, well, I learned my lesson. You know, I thought I could change the world. I thought I could do some good. Um, turns out I'm actually a pretty rotten individual. They can't handle the pressure when the pressure comes. 
So I'm just going to live out the rest of my days here in obscurity as a shepherd because I'm not good for what I thought I was good for. I don't love God as much as I thought I did. I'm not capable of what I thought I was capable of. And after 40 years of just kind of being there as a shepherd, God comes to him and says, Hey, Moses, I picked you. You're my guy. I want you to to liberate Israel from bondage. And Moses says, I don't want that job anymore. I wanted that job when I was 40. I'm 80 now. And God says, well, you weren't good for much when you were 40. You know, you didn't, you didn't know how rotten you were then. Uh, now that you've had 40 years to think about what a failure you are, I think that you're probably ready. See, when you wanted the job, you weren't qualified. Now that you don't want it, that's how I know you're qualified. God says the only person that can really succeed is the person who's been a failure. The only person that can really heal is the person who's broken. The only person who's really worth following is the leader who's reluctant to lead. That's, that's God's way of doing it. That's the way God does it here with Peter. And, you know, the, if, if you leave God out of the equation, it means there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There's the people that, that don't know how screwed up they are and are basically in love with themselves and want to show everybody else how how smart and how creative and how exciting and how interesting they are and how much good they can do. And that kind of person inevitably ends up screwing things up. You know, everything looks great, and then they collapse. It, I mean, you, you see it in the paper every day. And you, you think that you watch this person's career, you know, their, their 30, 40-year career or whatever, and you think, oh, no, this guy's really got it figured out. And then the story breaks, you know, they, they collapse. And then it, it turns out that they've actually been doing a lot of damage. They've been hurting a lot of people in their quest to show everybody how awesome they are. So you've got those kind of people, the people that don't know how screwed up they are and really try hard and just screw things up worse. And then you've got the people who do know how screwed up they are, which means you know, they don't want to play the game anymore. They're done with that. They don't believe in themselves enough to try. They're not in love with themselves anymore. So let me just sit this out like Moses. Let me just go be a shepherd like Peter going back to the boat. Let me just go hang out back on the lake. Let me be a fisherman again because I've learned my lesson. I'm not capable. I crumble when the pressure comes. Without God, those are the two kinds of people you got in the world, which is, you know, means we have no hope, basically. But with God, God and only God can create this third type of person, this type of person who knows how screwed up they are, but also knows they're loved and also knows they're called and also knows they really don't have a choice. That God wants them in the game. And God wants them in the game precisely because They've come to the end of themselves and know that they don't have anything to offer in themselves. And through that self-knowledge, through that realization, now for the first time, they're able to really do something. Like Moses leading two million people a 40-year journey to the promised land. Not the first Moses who thought he was a hot shot. Not the second Moses who was discouraged and just wanted to live out his days in obscurity. But the third Moses who knew how rotten he was, but also knew that he was called and loved by God. Or a person like this can do what Peter did, which is lead this movement that within a couple of hundred years had taken over the entire Roman Empire. Not the first Peter who thought that he was going to be a hero. Not the second Peter who was dejected and went back to the lake to fish. But the third Peter who realizes that he doesn't love Jesus nearly as much as he thought he did, but also realizes that Jesus loves him far more than he ever could have imagined Jesus did. So, hopefully we got there. You know, the thesis again, Jesus, uh, Jesus 
shows you who you really are to prepare you for who you can become. Hopefully, hopefully we, we got to that destination. And as we close, um, two obvious groups of people to, to address. Um, the first are, are those of you that, that haven't figured this out yet. You know, you think you're smart, you think you're capable, you think you're better than others, um, you think you can do anything. And what I want to say to you is you can do anything. You are capable of anything. You're capable of lying and cheating. You're capable of corruption. You're capable of cheating on your wife or your husband. You're capable of hurting a lot of people. And I guarantee you, as much as you think you've got it under control, as much as you think you're going to be the one that breaks the trend, when that moment comes, when your big test comes, when your crisis comes, you're going to be arrogant like Peter was all the way up until that final moment. And when it comes, you're going to crumble. You will crumble, and then you will have no idea who you are because your entire sense of self was built on being that guy, that girl, that man, that woman, that person that holds it all together, that's on top. And it's going to, it's going to all fall apart, and you'll have no idea who you are. To you, what I want to say is you can come to Jesus now. You can, you can speed it up, and he will deal with you the way he, he dealt with Peter. It's not going to be fun. It's, it's not going to be easy. You know, he, he slices you. He gets to the root. He gets to the tumor. Um, but he's also tender at the same time, and he's cutting you to heal. And the, the other group of people I want to address, and this is the last thing I'll say, is just those of you that already have figured this out. You already know you're a screw-up, because you already came to this crisis. You already came to this moment, this test. You already failed. You already made the perfectly wrong decision, and then you made it again, and then you made it again. You already hurt everybody you love. You already realize that you're a complete screw-up. And to you, what I want to say is God's got you right where he wants you. You're finally a person that can be used by God, because the hard part's over. You've come to the end of yourself. But, you know, the, the temptation is to just be discouraged, to put yourself on the sideline, to think that you don't have anything to offer, when really you're the only type of person that truly has something to offer. If you let God tell you how much he loves you, if you let God call you, if you let God give you the job that he wants to give you, because he does have a job for you, then you can really make a, a difference, not because you, you think you're so great, but because you realize that you aren't. Let's pray. God, it's a pretty inspiring thing to think about being used by you, by uh, your plan and being a part of what you want to do in the world. It's inspiring to us because it means significance. It means doing something that lasts beyond our lives, doing something that's bigger than just us, than our little world and our little family and our little apartment and our little job something that actually matters. Um, but we see here that you use people who have stopped believing they have something to offer, they, the people that have figured out that they don't love you as much as they thought they did or aren't as strong as they thought they were. And so I ask uh, first for those of us who who haven't figured that out yet, that you would come and, and pierce us. You would come and, and cut us with that truth 
as painful as it is, that we're not the person that we think we are. We're not the person we want everybody to believe we are. Um, really, we're a much lesser person, a much less impressive person than that. I pray that you convict us with that truth. And God, for those of us who have already been crushed by that, I ask that you'd lift the burden and restore us and tell us how much you love us and give us a call, give us a job to do, and give us the strength to do it by your strength, not by our own, by your greatness, not by our own. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ.